0: Hey guys, welcome to episode 83 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So before we get started, we just want to thank all of our listeners for all of the amazing things they do. First, if you left any reviews for us on any of your podcast listening platforms, we really appreciate it because that really helps us in the ratings. And if you've spread the word about us, that is tremendously helpful because we're still looking to grow, you know?
1: We are, and all you guys are helping us achieve that, so we can't thank you guys enough.
0: Right, and if you are wanting to be a little bit more generous and you want to donate to our Patreon page, you could do that at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple, and all of our Patreon donators actually will get two additional episodes a month, so we promise it's well worth your money. Also, um, you'll get ad-free episodes and a sticker if you donate At five dollars or above if it's just one or two dollars then you do get just one episode extra a month but that's still an extra whole hour of content for a dollar it's pretty good worth it (laughs) (laughs) okay so are you ready to get into this episode let's do it cape cod is located in the southeastern corner of mainland massachusetts it is a land that is rich in both beauty and history it was actually cape cod that the pilgrims originally sailed to But upon landing on the rugged shores, they decided that the land was too sandy to support their needs. And this explained why they sailed across what would become known as Cape Cod Bay to establish what would be known as Plymouth. It is because of its geographic location that the Cape was often visited by Europeans exploring what they called the New World. However, it was not a New World that was discovered. Rather, it was a continent that had millions of residents with thousands of years of ancestral history. In fact, the Cape, as beachgoers refer to it now, was home to the Wampanoag people. The word Wampanoag translates as people of the first light, and they had been living in modern-day Massachusetts for 12,000 years prior to the arrival of pilgrims. They are actually the Native Americans that remain nameless in the stories retold to elementary school children about the first Thanksgiving. But that tale is very far from the violent struggle that took place between the two groups. In reality, when the European settlers reached Cape Cod and claimed areas of the coastal lands now known as the Outer Cape or the northern tip of the extended landmass, they had violent clashes with the Wampanoag tribe. Hundreds of tribe members were abducted and sold into slavery in Spain. Others were kept by the English settlers and trained to learn English so they could be used as interpreters and guides. Later in 1616, the Wampanoag suffered what would come to be known as the Great Dying when thousands died, when they were infected by European diseases that were foreign to the Native American immune systems. Afterwards, there were sporadic violent clashes between the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the tribe. Later, these conflicts would be forced religious conversions and would result in King Philip's War. This history is an uncomfortable one for Americans to recognize because instead of celebrating the creation of a country, we're truly celebrating the destruction of another. And the picturesque Cape Cod we know today sits in stark contrast to what was once a battleground. Located just north of the islands of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, It has become known as a vacation spot for the elite in New England. Ironically, Cape Cod is considered one of the safest areas in the country. However, in 2002, in the same spot where 300 years earlier, colonists were being offered $60 for each Native American scalp that was returned to their governors, blood was spilled once more on Cape Cod.
1: Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings
0: of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The town of Churro, Massachusetts, sits just below the northernmost tip of Cape Cod. It was incorporated in 1709 and lies within the region known as the Outer Cape. I guess literally you can explain Cape Cod as an arm that looks like it's flexing off the end of Massachusetts. So Turo, if we continue with this personification, is the wrist part of the arm. So it's actually pretty far out there and removed from what you would consider mainland Massachusetts. Now, although there are many towns within the area known as Cape Cod, All of them seem to kind of merge into one small town. And this is because many wealthy people from New England and New York have summer homes in Cape Cod. Seasonal homes make up a lot of the real estate. Therefore, the year-round population is small, and everyone seems to know everyone. That is why, in 2002, when there was a murder in Churro, its 2,000 residents, which included their 14 police officers— were shocked because that meant there was a murderer in their midst. According to the Cape Cod Times, almost everyone knows the story of the Worthington family. John Worthington and his wife Ada were as American as apple pie. He had fought in World War I and returned home to work on the oil fields across the United States, only to settle in North Churro when he owned the Pondville Cold Storage Company, from 1933 to 1963, he had brought the fish processing plant back to life after the depression and provided the people of the town with much-needed jobs. So I guess the Worthingtons were—they were kind of described as the saviors of the Outer Cape because they provided a lot of jobs for people that were struggling um, as soon as the Great Depression ended. That they were still out of work.
1: Yeah, that's—I mean, that's crazy that someone you know um, was able to do that, you know, and just provide those people with with jobs right i mean what else could you ask for right
0: right so generations are going to be grateful to the worthington family and in the midst of his ownership of the company he left once again to fight for his country in world war ii and returned home as a hero
1: no way so he was in world war one and world war ii yes wow that's crazy
0: and ada who was his wife who also went by the name of tiny was just as responsible for building the coastal town back up from the depression She was responsible for making fishnet clothing using the New England Fisherman Essential Tool as a fashion item. And it became all the rage and was sold in the finest stores. She even had her own upscale fashion store in New York. So she, like, invented fishnet stockings.
1: (laughs) That's nuts. I know. Wow.
0: So, I mean, these two people are extremely accomplished.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously. I mean, look what they've done. That's awesome.
0: So the Worthingtons were Turo's royalty, and they were proud to call Cape Cod their home. They bought many homes, many of them right next to each other on what would become known as Depot Road. The family still held its prominence at the dawning of the 21st century. Although the fishing and fashion businesses are both gone, the Worthington family kept their money through investments and real estate. Four generations of Worthingtons lived in Turo, most of them residing in the originally purchased 10 homes. The secluded homes on Depot Road are interesting. In an ode to the old money privacy, the homes are set at the end of very long driveways and cannot be seen from the main road. Their grandeur kept a secret until you're lucky enough to be invited over.
1: I mean, that's pretty nuts, too, because... You have to think if they've uh, like the family invested in real estate, right? Every single one of those houses, even if the house was completely decrepit, just based on its location, you would think that it's worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars.
0: Well, yeah, that's true, especially now because Cape Cod is such a really popular beach location, especially for, um, I guess you can explain it. It's kind of like the people that go to Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket, people that have a lot of money go there to vacation so any real estate in locations like that where real estate is limited because they're small areas it's going to be really expensive
1: yeah i mean hey man i wish i had family that did shit like that that would be awesome yeah (laughs) because now we would be great right now if i had like 10 houses somewhere wow it'd be great come on mom come on dad what the hell
0: i know (laughs) (laughs) well i think also the worthington's Although they didn't go into like the business that their ancestors, their like great grandparents went into, a lot of them became lawyers. So now they were prominent lawyers in town as well. So that just increased, you know, the trust and the the net worth of oh, them yeah. all.
1: Oh, yeah,
0: 100%. And that was the life that Krista Worthington grew up in. She lived in a beautiful home on Depot Road. And when her parents would allow her, she would walk to the end of the road, which led out to the harbor. Where she would visit her great-grandparents, John and Ada, in their old captain's house that they owned. And she would play on the beach for hours. So those two people that we talked about in the beginning, those are her great-grandparents. And they were still alive when she was a child.
1: Wow, I mean, I wonder they must have been really old.
0: Yeah, and it's also rare. Yeah. However, as she got older, she got the itch that most did. The one that didn't discriminate amongst the wealthy or the poor. The one that told her she needed to leave Cape Cod. The rural seaside town had lost its charm for her. And I guess it can be hard living in a seasonal town sometimes. And I'm going beyond the whole like local versus tourist thing. I mean, living far out on the outer Cape must be difficult because you're so secluded in the fall and the winter and most of the spring. But then your town comes to alive in the summer And that I can only imagine that, especially as a teenager, when you get all these people in your town and it's so exciting in the summertime. And then when they go to leave in the fall, you want to go with them.
1: Right. Because it's all you know for like a couple of months, right? (laughs) Like It's like they come in, you're happy, you know, you're seeing new people. It's great. And then they're just gone and then you're just there by yourself again. So it's kind of weird. I I don't know if I would want to live like in an area like that.
0: Right. And you just wonder like, what's out there where... You know, you're not held, especially Krista Worthington, like because in Cape Cod, I can imagine she was held to certain standards because of the prominence of her family and people may have preconceived notions about her. Right. So I would want to kind of escape that, too. Right. Exactly. And Krista, as an only child, she definitely felt a lot of pressure from her family. Krista was very passionate about fashion, just like most of the women in her family. And of course, her great grandmother, the creator of Fishnets. I mean, come on. And she loved to write. And by all accounts, she was a really good writer. So she chose to leave for New York City, where she was going to make a name for herself. And she didn't want to just become someone who was involved in the fashion industry, because at that time when she left, a lot of people were getting involved in the fashion industry and... It's kind of like being in L.A. and just wanting to be an actor. Like, everyone wants to be an actress.
1: Right, exactly. There's a, there are like a dime a dozen.
0: Right. So she wanted to combine her two loves, like her two passions, fashion and writing, and she wanted to be a fashion writer in the city.
1: Okay, that's pretty cool.
0: There was also another reason that Krista Worthington wanted to leave the Cape. Life was not too easy for her in isolated churro, especially because she was an only child and she had a strange relationship with her parents. Her father was a prominent lawyer who had at one point risen to the ranks of assistant attorney general of Massachusetts, but he was a hard drinker and was often cruel to Krista. Her mother was also not the type to coddle her in any way. Gloria was an interesting character. She definitely liked to drink as well, but her biggest vice was herself. She was a painter who was a little obsessed with the world of the elite And relish the idea of being a Worthington on the Cape, so she kind of like rejected the stereotypes that her family was kind of giving up, and that's why she wanted to leave.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to imagine. I mean, even from her, what her great, her great grandparents or grandparents, great grandparents. So, like, you have to think, like, just in since there's not a lot of people around, they know who who her family is and their rise, like you said, to prominence. I mean, you know, it's humble beginnings, but at this point. In the generations of her family, obviously, they've done the right thing to maintain their money and their power and their position. So it's like, I guess it's kind of, you know, that's kind of rough because everyone's going to look at you and know who you are and what you're about and what your family has done. So I can understand that.
0: So after graduating from Vassar, Krista left it all behind and moved to New York City, where she became a fashion writer, and she was great at it. She loved being able to make a name for herself and not rely on the accolades of her ancestors. This Carrie Bradshaw-esque life that she created was all of her own. She worked at L, W, Harper's Bazaar, and even for a short period of time, she got to live in Paris, where she worked as the editor for Women's Wear Daily, a very coveted position. Her friends described her as this fascinating woman, She came from a unique background. The mixture of Americana, hardworking New England family, made it big in the fishing industry, mixed with the high fashion of her great-grandmother, was intriguing. However, Krista was always a mystery. Classy and coy at parties and social events, she had become a woman around town. She was effortlessly gorgeous. She had a natural beauty and glow about her. And I would say... You know, based on like the time period, she had this like Shannon Doherty, Terry Hatcher 90s thing going on where it's not a lot of makeup, but she was just like breathtakingly beautiful. Her friends loved her. And this is something that is really clear based on the articles that were written about her and the interviews that are given after this terrible crime takes place. You could tell she was a great friend to have. They do admit, however, that at some times she could get a little crazy when she had a deadline coming Um, and everyone knew to give her her space and to let her finish. And then once the deadline was met, she would return to her good natured self. That's kind of like how I am with the podcast when I'm writing an
1: episode. (laughs) Um, 110%.
0: (laughs) So they also say that despite being gorgeous and having a sharp wit and a thoughtful mind, she had a lot of trouble in her love life. She definitely had her fair share of boyfriends and lovers. Um, Her sex life was something that she was never ashamed of. She was very um, proud of her sexuality. And that was something that her friends said. Like, she was very before her time when it came to the fact that she was very um, okay and embraced her sex life. And didn't think that this was something that, you know, she had to hide that she was doing. You know? Okay. Because sometimes women that come from, like, high society, they are told that you know, they're not supposed to talk about those things. But she really didn't have a problem doing that. And she actually really liked to talk about it, especially to her friends. Um, They said that she loved telling them every salacious detail. And, you know, she just never really shied away from exploring her sexuality or a possible suitor because, you know, she was on the hunt for love and she was going to give it every, you know, every opportunity she had. She was going to try and see if she could find the one for her. So her passion may have been writing, but her real dream was to have a family of her own. She had been known to have um, many affairs, though, with men, some who were dating other women and some whom were married. So her friends did always tell her, like, it's going to be really hard for you to start a family if you keep the company of these men who clearly you may not have a future with.
1: Might also get you in trouble, too. Yeah. It's not, not a good thing. Um, it's know. not
0: a good thing to do, like, continuously. Like, this happened several times in right. her life. Yeah. She had dated a wealthy man once who owned a castle in Europe and was for a time in love with Stan Stokowski. Um, he's the son of the famous conductor Leopold Stokowski and Gloria Vanderbilt, so... I mean, she was dating a Vanderbilt for a long time.
1: Wow. That's pretty cool, though, actually. Uh, Yeah, that's
0: really cool. (laughs) However, that, much like many of the other tumultuous relationships she was known to have, didn't really work out. And, in fact, it had a pretty bitter end. So it was in 1998 that Krista, who had just turned 42 years old, said... She reached the point where she was at the pinnacle of her career, and now she really wanted to have children. I mean, and you hear this time and time again from other people that kind of like in your 40s, it's when women are like, okay, if I'm going to start to have a family, I have to kind of do it now. This is when I should really start.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I feel like it's, it is very difficult for women and very different than it is for men uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, like
0: midlife crises look different. <laughs> um.
1: Yeah, 100%. But um, yeah, I, I, I guess I could understand that. I mean, if that's what she wants, it's like, I got to get the ball rolling here.
0: <laughs> right. And yeah. this is 1998. So it's not like it was today where a woman could say, okay, I'm going to freeze my eggs at this point. And then I could, it makes it a little bit easier to possibly get pregnant in the future. In 1998, it was a little more limited. Yeah. No, you're
1: right about that because, I mean, there were really no options. There was no, what is that, I, 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 IVF. IBA, IVF or any of those things. So it's like, that's, yeah, sorry, I don't know what they're called. It's but, okay. <laughs> um, But, yeah, no, it's true. There was no options. So it's even more of a pressing matter in 1998. Correct. You know?
0: So in her last relationship, Krista thought she was going to be engaged around Christmas time. And it would have worked out perfectly that her birthday was on December 23rd. However, this was not the case. And Krista, according to her friends, had this revelation about her life. She wanted a change of pace. And the hustle and bustle of New York City was great in her 20s and 30s. But it had lost its charm. It was clear that she wasn't going to find the the kind of man that she wanted there. And uh, that's true. I mean... New York City kind of has a reputation for the wealthy men that live in the city. They kind of want to remain eternal bachelors because their wallets allow for that. (laughs) (laughs) She also wanted to change her career. She wanted to begin to write fiction and she wanted a quiet place that she could go and write a novel, a different environment that would inspire her. And I, I think this is really interesting, this kind of like return to home as children, we don't really appreciate things and environments that we're in because, you know, you're a kid and you kind of just want more for yourself or you think, you know, your hometown is stupid. But sometimes as you get older, you're like, you kind of yearn for that again.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a humble beginnings type of thing. I mean, that's what you're trying to aim for, right? She wants to be able to go back home and, um you know, be in a quiet atmosphere where no one's going to bother her or she's not going to feel the pressure of where she was in the city so you know i can understand that that's where it would be a great idea to go back to right it's what she knows
0: right and then i think that that's where she pictures herself raising a family right in 1998 krista's mother was also diagnosed with colon cancer which made the choice easier for her the worthington was returning to churro an envious career under her belt and with a desire to finally settle down Of course, the cape was buzzing with the news that Krista Worthington was returning home. It sounds like a soap opera. (laughs) Um, She moved into a beach bungalow that was located on Depot Road. Obviously, her family still owned the property, so it was quite easy for her to purchase, and I'm sure at a low price. And now she again lived on the same street as her parents, aunts, uncles, and cousins.
1: That's That's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's great.
0: It was easy for her to settle back into the slow-paced living of the Cape, and it was exactly what she needed. And this bungalow, guys, it is, it's breathtaking. It's right on the ocean with a front porch, and um, there's white trim and dark cedar shake siding, like, you know, like the siding that looks like wood that's always on, like, beach properties. It's just... It's amazing. I mean, that's like the coolest place to write a novel if you're going to write a novel, right?
1: Yeah, you like it to look out into the ocean and stuff. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Type away. That is pretty cool.
0: She told friends back in the city that she did want to write a novel, but she was more interested in starting a family as quickly as possible. She did feel as if she was in a race with her biological clock because she was 42 years old. She had gone to see a doctor. Um, while she was at the Cape, about the possibility of having children. But they told her, most likely because of her age and because of a condition that was never truly disclosed, that she was never going to be able to have children.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, that's that's a hard pill to swallow, I feel like, especially, obviously, a woman. That's hard. You know, this is something that you want. You want a family. You want a legacy of your own, and now you can't have it.
0: I can't imagine hearing that news. That must have been so difficult to hear because, I mean, for many reasons, it takes, you know, as a woman, you kind of always just assume that you're, it's going to come eat. Like, you're just going to be able to have children. You don't think that your body's ever going to not allow that to take place. Right. It's psychological. And
1: and like, I mean, obviously, I I don't know for a fact, but I don't know. I'll chalk it up to you. Like, I mean, it's not like a woman goes and finds out. Like, I mean... You, unless you had an issue or something was wrong, you wouldn't know, right? Right. You know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't go seek that out. Like, you wouldn't know until you tr- started trying, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, you wouldn't know. Right, right. That's terrible. Yeah, it's it's really sad. So, I mean, but we also have to take into context the time here. It's 1998. So, the belief was a little bit different. Um, people were saying that if you didn't have kids by your early 30s, that you weren't going to. And, of course, if you had a kid after your mid-30s, it was extremely high risk. So we know a little bit differently today that that's kind of, like, not necessarily the case. Women are having children older nowadays.
1: Yeah, no, it's true.
0: Just, because you know, for financial reasons or for lifestyle reasons.
1: Or career reasons. Yeah, but in
0: 1998, that kind of wasn't a thing. So doctors, I think, were a little bit more, like, apprehensive. I know that when my mother had my sister she was 36 and this was in 1996 and the doctors were like this is such a high-risk pregnancy and like they kind of like scared us a little bit wow really yeah so there's kind of that's just the way like doctors thought so it may not necessarily be that she can't have children but they put it in her mind that like they kind of like i don't know put out her dream
1: yeah that's crazy it's
0: sad though so this news hit Krista pretty hard, as you can imagine, and she had been down for weeks. And it was at that point that a new man walked into her life. His name was Tony Jacket. The reason they met was because he was the assistant harbor master at the time, and he lived so close to the docks as most of her family did. So as he would walk past her house, she would yell out to him. She was like a really like personable person. She loved having conversations and talking to people. So she would yell out to him, you know, while she was on her porch and they began to have conversations. And their conversations grew longer and deeper over time and they became close friends. Jack had said that Krista had made him feel at ease and he loved being around her. Their friendship quickly turned into a sexual relationship, which would have been amazing for Krista, except for the fact that Tony Jacket was married with five children.
1: Oh, man, that is unbelievable. Again, every time this woman like, thinks she's finding the one or, 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 you know. Well,
0: I think she knew about his family uh-huh. a lot before um, their sexual relationship began
1: okay i take it back then
0: i just i think this is a pattern <laughs> yeah. that had developed in her life and if i were a psychologist you might say that um she's desiring the unattainable maybe because she doesn't feel like even though she wants a family that she might not be ready for it there could be a lot of factors involved or
1: yeah why or I, she keeps yeah. getting
0: involved with married men
1: I, I was also just thinking the fact that maybe like after the diagnosis that she couldn't have children maybe it kind of like I don't want to say through off the deep end, but like where she went back into her old ways. Yeah. If that makes sense.
0: I know what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, guys, we're going to take a break here to hear from our first sponsor, Thrive Market. A few months ago, we became Thrive Market members, and now we're getting organic, sustainable groceries delivered right to our front door. Some of our favorite items we purchased from Thrive Market have been the organic coffees and protein powders, And of course, the clean wine they have is always a must. But our recent order, um, I wanted to try the organic Thrive Market sea salt seaweed snacks, and they were amazing. I could not imagine shopping for these items in any other way. Once you try Thrive Market, you'll love it just as much as we do. And here's why. As a proud member of Thrive Market, we get the products we love, and our paid membership provides a free one for someone in need like a low-income family, a teacher, a veteran, or a first responder. Thrive Market tailors to over 700 different diets and values, like paleo, keto, plant-based, and they deliver the highest quality of organic and sustainable essentials, from groceries, healthy snacks, meat and seafood, clean wines, non-toxic cleaning, and bath and body. As members, we're saving 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices, and their carbon-neutral shipping is free on orders over $49. The savings we get on our favorite clean organic products are amazing, but we also feel good about helping to support communities in need. In addition to membership matching, Thrive Market has raised over $750,000 to date through their COVID-19 relief fund go to thrivemarket.com slash TCC. Join today and you'll get a free gift of your choosing up to $22 in value. That is T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash TCC to start your risk-free membership and get a free gift today. Again, that's thrivemarket.com slash TCC. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. Now, I don't want to put the blame all on Krista, because, I mean, Tony Jacket, you got five kids at home. So it's also, you know, his contribution, it takes two to tango, right? Exactly,
1: and that's the thing. It's like, I'm not going to blame her completely here. I mean, he's had fault here, and so are all the other guys that are doing that before this dude, too. Right. Like, come on now. It ta- like you said, it does take two to tango. I mean, come on, dude.
0: And the fact that this was not Tony Jacket's first affair that he participated in. Not good, man. In fact, many on Cape Cod knew of the man's indiscretions. It's what happens when you live in a tight-knit community. I was
1: just about to say that.
0: People know. Your business. (laughs) He had a reputation for being a bit of a womanizer. And there is, you know, like we said, no such thing as a secret in Turo. So everyone, including his wife, knew about these affairs. And they were a huge point of contention for the couple, as you can imagine. His wife, however, wanted to salvage her marriage. She loved her husband and her children, and she wanted to give them, you know, the life that she imagined for herself, and she chose to forgive her husband time after time, which is sad.
1: Yeah, difficult situation, uh, to put it mildly. (laughs) Yeah.
0: The affair between Krista and Jacket lasted for two years. During this time, the two were having unprotected sex, as Krista was under the impression that she could not have children. But one day, as the couple was laying in bed, Krista told Jacket the exciting news. He was going to be a father again.
1: Oh my god. Okay.
0: She was ecstatic, through the roof happy. And this is what she wanted all along. She was going to have a baby. Something that she believed would make her life feel, you know, fulfilled. This is what she wanted the whole time. Jacket however, did not share the same sentiment as Krista. He was 50 years old, and he already had five children, most of whom were grown up like in college. So he had felt, you know, he was done raising babies. He was an entirely different stage of his life. So after this revelation, the affair continued for a short time, but ended amicably months later. Like, it was kind of just like, okay, we're on two totally different paths here. However, there is now a child that has been brought into the mix of this all. So Jacket told Krista that he just wanted to be with his wife, and she agreed that they should, you know, break up. She told Jacket that he did not have to tell his wife or anyone about the fact that her daughter, who she named Ava, was also his. So this was supposed to be a big secret that Ava was his daughter. She said that she would raise Ava all on her own and that she would be just as happy with her daughter.
1: Uh, Once again, I just don't see how that could actually be smart, a smart move to make by keeping that a secret because small town, everyone talks. I mean, everybody already knew that she was having an affair with him behind his wife's back. So it's kind of like, I mean, come on, let's put two and two together. It takes two to make a baby. Come on now. I just it's to me that's a little odd
0: I completely agree and Jacket and Krista did drift apart I mean they ran into each other in town could you imagine like the whole town knew that Jacket and Krista were having an affair Krista becomes pregnant they kind of stop their affair but he's obviously the father of the baby Right. And could you imagine running into each other at the grocery store? Like, that's just your daughter.
1: You know, oh, oh, you know, hey, dad, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, to me, that's very bizarre. And now you have to, you know, when that kid gets a little older now, now you have to explain, right? Yeah. That's going to be a little difficult to explain that.
0: So, um, despite the controversy surrounding who the father of Ava was, it was clear that Krista was head over heels in love with her baby girl. She was obsessed, and everyone in her life commented on just, really how Krista's life changed after she had Ava. She became happier. Um, she was so into every little aspect of Ava's life and her growth and her development and she became kind of like a d- totally different person.
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes it grounded we- her. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Oh my oh, god, sorry. You're on a roll today. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, but it is true. you your thunder. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. But I do feel that like maybe that is the case with, with a lot of people, right? When you have children, even if like you're kind of wild, you like to have a good time, whatever yeah. the case is. But when you have children, it kind of does ground you, and you put their needs um, ahead of yours. So right. I think that's what's happening here.
0: There's a few people I know from college who really would literally just drink themselves to oblivion, pass out on the floor, and then now they're just like dads, and they're yeah. just like so great at being dads. And yeah. It's so funny how it, you know, you get older and it, ch- it changes your whole life and your lifestyle. It's That's, so, it's it's so cool. weird
1: because like all of your friends are like in like a married, ma- pregnant, married pregnant phase, whereas all of my friends... Are aren't even not. dating people <laughs> they're either not dating anybody or i think i have like two friends that are actually with somebody yeah. and, and only one of them is married
0: it's hard because yeah. i need them to get girlfriends so i can <laughs> like to hang out with them
1: yeah no it's true but it's so funny because I mean, we're not that you know you're not much older than me and yeah
0: i'm only two years older yeah, than you but
1: it's just uh just the way it is i guess
0: yeah this is a weird stage in our lives where half of our friends are Married and having kids, and the other half are blacking out on Tuesdays. Yeah, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thirsty Thursdays. So, once Ava was born, Krista entered into a relationship with another man. His name was Tim Arnold. He was around the same age as Krista, and he quickly became infatuated with her. To her, he seemed perfect. He was happy with and completely accepted the fact that her life was centered solely around Ava. In fact, he even wrote children's books, so he too was fascinated with child psychology and child-rearing ideas. It seemed like that they were going to be perfect for each other. However, over time, Arnold showed his true colors. He would sometimes be inconsiderate of Krista and the baby's schedule, and anytime Krista tried to confront him about anything or talk to him, he would get really aggressive And she would as well. So, like, the two of them were kind of like fire and gasoline. Like, they were bad together.
1: Super passionate, but sometimes it doesn't work out too well. (laughs) Exactly.
0: So, eventually, Krista ended the relationship. Arnold took this pretty harshly and begged to remain friends. He lived in very close proximity to Krista. So, to keep things amicable, she agreed to, like, kind of keep a friendship with him. It was basically like, let me, like... Contain his crazy. It's like what her mindset was that she told her friends about. Okay. And she did say that he did continue to cross boundaries and make her feel really uncomfortable. So that's like not a good situation to be in.
1: Small town problems, right?
0: Yeah. Especially when he could walk to her house. That's how close they lived.
1: Yeah, that's a problem.
0: (laughs) However, when we look at things from the perspective of Arnold, he had written in his diary that. There had been an ache where Krista and Ava had once been and that actually he was the one who left her several times because of her angry and hostile demeanor, but that he wanted to try and make it work because he couldn't picture his life without her in it. So we don't know really truly the correct story, but people have come out and said that it was kind of like Arnold who was the aggressor in the situations yeah and that he was extremely controlling that in reality he was very upset with the fact that like he was not the father of ava it was tony jacket
1: which i always find weird right because if you're gonna date somebody um w- and knowing you know full well that that kid's not yours to begin with and that you're just you know dating the mother right yeah. i mean like what i mean i don't know where that comes from that or, you yeah. know what i mean like, that's weird to me.
0: Well, I think that's because, you know, you don't have the mindset of, like, the kind of person that would act the way that Tim Arnold act.
1: No, 100%. But I feel like when you're in that situation, you need to take a certain role and a, and a step, like, a seat back, step yeah. back. You know, like, you not you can't get in the way of her raising her daughter. You have to know True. what to do and how to act. And apparently he couldn't do that.
0: No. So... No, because it seemed like it had to be about him coming in and saving the day. So, like, a little bit later on, Jack is going to get reinvolved in Ava's life. And that was something that I think Arnold couldn't handle because he wanted to be the savior at all times.
1: I also think that because he wanted to be the savior, I think that, I think he, in my opinion, I don't know anything. But I, if to me, it seems like I don't think he liked the fact that she was an independent, self-made woman. Right. Because she was able to take care of herself. She had money. She came from a great family right and she had everything going for her so to me it's like that's a, probably another thing into the mix as well right you know if he wants to be the savior then he wants to be the one to pay he wants to be the one to get her this and that like so you know that's probably where conflict also happens.
0: right it's not the woman that he's usually used to dating. right exactly so this brings us to the day of january 6th 2002 Tim Arnold was going up to Krista's property because he was returning a flashlight that he had borrowed from her. He was a little nervous because she had yelled at him before for showing up unannounced, but he had just had brain surgery seven months prior and he was unable to drive. So this was the only time that he could get a ride to her house from his father and he had no intentions of staying. Um, That's what he's going to say on the stand, but that's not something that I truly believe. Um, We'll get into that a little bit later. He actually was just going to leave the flashlight on the front porch. However, when they both got to the entrance of her driveway, they noticed that there were two issues of the New York Times lying near her mailbox, meaning that she didn't go pick them up. Arnold instructed his father to stop so he could pick them up and then drop them off on the porch as well. So they headed up the 175-foot driveway. As they approached the porch, they noticed that Worthington's door was open, but the storm door in front of it was closed. Arnold got out of the car and went to approach the door. Krista's car was in the driveway, but it was very unusual for her to have left her door open, especially during the New England winter. When he peered inside the house, past the actual door that was left damaged and half open, he had to adjust his eyes. The brain surgery had left him with blurred vision, so it was difficult to see, and he hoped that his eyes were deceiving him. He saw Krista on the floor, and it appeared that two-and-a-half-year-old Ava was being breastfed. That was very odd, he thought. Why would she be breastfeeding in front of her front entranceway with the door open, laying on the ground? He knew that although Ava was getting older, Krista still occasionally breastfed her when she was upset but never in such an odd position. Arnold called out to the child, who was very familiar with him. Ava popped her head up and ran to him. He walked into the house and picked up the child. He recalled the usually talkative child greeted him, but was very quiet. She also had blood all over her. He walked towards Krista and realized quickly that there was something wrong. She had been wearing a long black shirt and bathrobe. The bathrobe was open, and her black shirt was pushed up above her chest. Her legs were spread open wide, her right leg bent at the knee. He noticed that her lips were very swollen, that there was a lot of blood that had run down the side of her face and pooled on the floor. He knew by her open, staring eyes that she was dead.
1: Wow, that's crazy. So wow okay so the kid did the kid not realize
0: no I mean she's two and a half years old she's probably I mean, that's
1: true what am I saying yeah depending right.
0: on how long she was dead she was really hungry the girl so she was like okay where have I been fed before the breastfeeding right, so she was right. so hungry that she was trying to breastfeed from her dead mother
1: that is so that is disturbing. a traumatizing yeah. scene to see well thank God she's only two years old
0: right? yeah well <laughs> we don't I mean the whole Dexter thing right you never I mean, know yeah I how... guess so I mean, she's obviously going to hear about it as she gets older. And that's something that someone would have to deal with psychologically, you know, hopefully with the help of a professional. But as traumatizing to see, to hear about, to like.
1: It's traumatizing even being the one to find them like that, too.
0: Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Especially because and, you know, as messed up as Arnold might have been, he did love them. Right. So to see that must have been really rough. He went to get the phone that was usually on its cradle on the wall in the kitchen. However, the phone was not there. He went into the living room, and with a children's show playing in the background on the TV, he searched for where the phone could be. He turned off the TV, and he still couldn't find the phone. When he walked towards the body again, he said he checked her pulse, and he had felt nothing. He then looked beyond her body into the bathroom. There appeared to be blood on the rim of the sink and some on a washcloth beneath the sink. That was when it hit him. Ava had tried to clean her mother up. And, like we said before, she'd been trying to breastfeed because she was hungry. Because at that point, he didn't know how long has his toddler been left alone.
1: That's true. Yeah, I mean, how would you know?
0: So he left the house and went to tell his father, who was waiting in their vehicle outside, what had happened. He felt the need to spell out what had happened for the sake of the child. Krista is D-E-A-D, and I can't find the phone. I wanted to get the baby out, so can you go look for it? Shocked, Arnold's father went into the house. Now, he's a veterinarian, so he had a little bit of a better understanding of what had happened to Krista's face. So when he talked to the police, he described it a little bit more, Um, He said she had clearly been beaten very badly and that contusions covered her upper lip, nose, and forehead. And he searched the house too, but still could not find the phone. So Tim Arnold went back in again to look for the phone. See, at this part, this point, I know they're in shock probably, but like it would have been faster for them to just go back to their own house and call. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like they keep. Taking yeah. turns going back and it's like I don't know if it's giving be- me anxiety
1: <laughs> I don't yeah no I know I don't know if it's because of the kid maybe they don't want to remove the kid for I mean they should want to remove the kid I know from you situation. don't know what to do but, yeah you don't know what to do right I mean that's I don't know but yeah you're right I mean if they were that close to begin with he could have just went to his house but I mean I don't know maybe he just didn't want to leave the scene.
0: Right. Well, eventually he does like realize, like, okay, I should probably just like run home and call the police. Right. And that's what he eventually ends up doing. But the whole time that they searched the house, both of them never saw Krista's cell phone that was actually on the dining room table. And crime scene investigators are going to comment in their report that the home was actually really cluttered, it was kind of really messy. So it was really hard to find things. Okay. And her cell phone was on a dining room table and the number nine had been pressed.
1: Oh, so she, oh, okay. So maybe she was trying to To call call 911. Mm -hmm. Hmm.
0: Eventually though, 911 had been dialed by Tim Arnold from his house and he informed them that Krista Worthington was found bleeding and unresponsive and that her toddler had also been found at the scene, but was unharmed visibly. He told them that he would meet first responders at her residence, not his own. The first on the scene was first responder Jan Worthington, Krista's cousin. She met Tim Arnold outside and he told her, it's Krista. I think she's dead. Jan ran in and saw the scene. She screamed and continued to scream for someone to help until an ambulance finally met her in the driveway. I mean, that was like a crazy scene to see. Uh, Jan is going to like testify and say that when she first heard the call, she at first thought it was a mistake because her parents lived directly across from Krista. So she was like, oh, my God, are my parents okay? Like, it can't be Krista. Like, what would have happened? So when she ran to go there and she kind of, like, went up Krista's driveway, and so she, she went into shock. And then she couldn't even do anything to help. She just started screaming.
1: Yeah, no, that's crazy. When you say first, was she an officer?
0: Um, she's, like, an EMT. Oh,
1: okay, okay. That's crazy, though. I mean, what are the odds, right? That she's an EMT, right? And that's her relative? Yeah. Oh, my God. Well,
0: I mean, that it's a very small, small town. town. Yeah, that's crazy. When the paramedics arrived, they confirmed that Krista was dead and that rigor had set in. So that meant that she had been dead for quite some time. As they analyzed the body and covered her with a nearby blanket, Jan's screams could still be heard from outside. She did not fully calm down into, until her father... And her other uncle arrived at the scene to basically, you know, take her away from the scene. An EMT then checked on Ava to make sure that she was all right. She was physically okay, except for the fact that she had an awful diaper rash from being unchanged for so long and very hungry. The EMT commented later that the child shook in his arms for hours and that if anyone says that the child didn't see what happened, that they're totally crazy. So, yeah, it did affect her, even though she might not have been able to process it. I mean, knowing that your mother is no longer there and not responding to you. I, I couldn't imagine.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it's that's nuts. I mean, and even though the kid's only two years old, I mean, still <laughs> can see what's happening.
0: Correct. Investigators arrived at the scene and they quickly took notice of the forced entry through the front door. There was quite literally a footprint impression on the door. It was clear that she had been repeatedly struck in the face, and they believed, based on the positioning of her body and the fact that she was exposed, sexually assaulted. However, it was later determined that the cause of death had come from one single knife wound, a blow so brutal that it had caused the knife to pass through her entire body, her chest, and nick the wood floor beneath her.
1: So was she on the floor she and then was stabbed? She on
0: the floor when she was stabbed. Okay. Three brown hairs were found on Krista's body, but they were all different lengths. One of them matched herself, the other the baby, and one belonged to neither of them. When the medical examiner arrived, she was able to place Krista's time of death at Friday night, like late Friday night. Meaning that Ava had been alone with her dead mother from Friday night until late Sunday afternoon not fed, not changed. So the immediate concern was to get Ava with someone who she would feel safe with.
1: Wow, that is a long time for that kid to be alone.
0: Yeah, very long time. Well, it just so happens, and everyone knows this, including the ME, the investigators, the EMTs, that just six months prior to this incident taking place, That Jacket had actually come clean with his wife and admitted not only that he had had a two-year affair with Krista, but that he was the father of her daughter. So when a call was made as to who would take care of Ava, it was made to Tony Jacket and his wife. They told him and his wife that Krista had been found murdered and that they needed someone to take custody of baby Ava for the time being. Now, if you have noticed, this case is very unlike the other cases we have covered here because we have a victim that has been murdered and there are signs of forced entry. Usually, oh, there's no signs of forced entry. What could have happened? Here, it's pretty clear that there's a footprint on the door and that someone kicked and forced their way into her home. Yeah. And there's a few suspects already. So let's get into them. First, there's Tim Arnold, the ex-boyfriend who found the body. When he was questioned by police, he admitted that he and Krista had a very explosive relationship. When they fought, they would really go at it, but he was still obsessed with her. Because he feared the police would find the physical evidence that was most likely at her home, he told police that he had, on a few occasions, looked into Krista's windows while walking to and on the beach. So if they found his fingerprints on the outside of the windows, that would be why. What? I
1: mean, that is a little weird. Right away, I'm, I'm just going to say one thing. Sometimes the one that seems the most obvious might not be it because this is why, right? If the guy had, in my opinion, if the guy had like brain surgery, he couldn't see too well, and even though he was an aggressive man... And weird, and a stalker. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not too sure just yet if if I want to, you know, I want to say in my mind, right, okay, this right. is the dude, because he didn't hurt the child either. Like I feel like,
0: but it, he loved the child. He
1: does love the child, but you know what? So could the actual father? The father wouldn't harm his own daughter. Okay. So it's it's like that's one of the things where it's like, right? Now it's like it wouldn't be just some random stranger. If a random stranger did it, the random stranger would take care of everybody that was there. Right. Regardless um, of it being a child or not.
0: So if there's you, no one yeah. left to tell. I mean, that's
1: what I'm thinking. I mean, if you if you have the uh, the the gall to um, pretty much blitz your way into a home, break the door down, and, mm-hmm. you know, kill her, I would imagine that you would have no problem killing everybody there.
0: I see what you're saying. But I will say that, like, if you're a police officer and you're hearing, oh, um, just so you know, my fingerprints are going to be outside the window because when I... Do my walk on the beach. I tend to just like look in her window. Well, let sometime. me ask you
1: a question. If you were a cop and uh, a a possible suspect comes is by telling you, if you find evidence there, obviously I lived in that house. No, or, or, I would or say I, he's you know.
0: trying to cover him, him. He's trying to cover his ass. Yeah, yeah. But he does take a polygraph and he does pass the polygraph test. Okay. However, the investigators still liked him as a suspect. After meeting with police and talking freely to them three times, Arnold chose to, under the advice of his father, get a lawyer. Through those in town, Arnold found out that he was a prime suspect in the murder, mainly because of some voicemails that were left on Krista's answering machine. It turned out the way things went that Arnold had loose plans with Krista the week before, And that she wasn't answering the phone, so Arnold left her disturbing voicemails. And I've heard these voicemails. Basically, it seemed that Krista had said, oh, I'll meet you for dinner next weekend. And next weekend was the weekend that she got murdered.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So... She was not answering his phone calls. And from what her friend said, this happened several times where Arnold would call over and over again and Krista would kind of just let the phone ring and he would leave these like really disturbing voicemails and the voicemails that he left that Friday about, you know, not making plans. Like they started off like normal, like, are we going to meet? Let me know what time. Just give me a call back and then they got increasingly aggressive to like i don't want anything to do with you how, how could you just like not even answer your phone you're being a child like so and right. then and then it got back to hey sorry i left that message like it was kind okay. of like those so a crazy weird. voicemails
1: yeah. so pretty much because she didn't want to spend time with him when he wanted to and you know he decided to act like a petulant child right he lashed yeah. out at her right
0: so those voicemails <laughs> They're a little
1: bizarre
0: and damning, I think, for him. But still, after all of it, um, and that's why I said the flashlight thing was weird. So I'm going to leave all these friggin' weird voicemails for you. I'm going to get super upset that you didn't want to meet me for dinner. So I'm going to find an excuse to drop by your house, I think, most likely to see if there was a dude there.
1: Good point. And then also, if you had... If you didn't mind um, stalking her and putting your, your fingerprints on her window, why would you be afraid of going there be- to get scolded by her? Remember, because that's what yes. that's what she he was like. Oh, I don't want her to yell at me to come unattended um, or un, you know unaware of him coming over. Right, because so, she you had
0: flipped out on him in the past. Okay, and like in his voicemails, he alluded to the fact that Krista kind of knew that he had a bond with Ava, so she would allow him to see her sometimes. And in the voicemails, he was saying, like, I just want to see Ava. I don't want to see you. Like, kind of like declaring himself as the role of Ava's father. It was very strange. And I think he really thought that it was just going to be him and Krista's life. So the fact that she might have been with somebody else was really disturbing him.
1: Yeah. I also think that, I mean, he was around for a while. So I think when when the actual father wasn't in the picture... And then all of a sudden, he kind of came back in. I think that might have triggered him a little bit.
0: Oh, 100%. Because that's kind of when their relationship went sour Right, right. Okay, guys. We're going to take a break from the show to hear from our final sponsor, Best Fiends. I've been playing Best Fiends for a while now. Like, I am level 834 a while now. I still love it. The game is so fun and forever evolving. The constant new events and monthly game updates also keep me invested, and I feel like I'm always getting rewarded for playing. It's like the game is a service for its players, and it never gets old. I just love pulling out my phone and passing the time, advancing through all of the levels. The puzzle game has gotten more challenging as the levels have advanced, and I'm becoming very serious about leveling up my characters, so we can tackle anything the new level throws at us. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of 5-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must play. You can download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. So, Tim Arnold always kind of wanted to hang out with Krista or see Ava, even though the couple had broken up. And Krista didn't want to just come out and say that she wasn't interested or that she didn't want him around. So, she just didn't answer the phone most times. Like sometimes it's like, okay, I'm trying to give you the hint buddy. Like this isn't working out. Now the incident that I was talking about in which Krista got really mad at Arnold was this one. Um, He of course wanted to hang out with Krista and see Ava, even though the couple broke up. So like, instead of her just coming out and saying like, you're really creeping me out and I don't want to be, In this relationship or friendship with you, she kind of just didn't answer the phone, which is unfortunate. And most women feel like when there's a man like this in their lives, like sometimes it's easier to placate him instead of getting him angry because I don't know what he's capable of. And it's a scary position for a woman to be in, especially with a two and a half year old daughter. And there's this guy who thinks that he's her father.
1: Yeah, I think he's. (laughs) Yeah, it is scary. And he can go off the deep end, so...
0: Right. So this one day in particular, he's, like, calling and calling, and she wasn't picking up the phone, and he walked over to her house and knocked on her door. She didn't answer the door, and she saw him peeking through her windows. And this is when she walked out of the house and kind of started a fight with him and told him that he was never allowed to come over unannounced again, which is why he was apprehensive about the flashlight thing. But I think he was so obsessed with her that he needed to see if there was a guy there.
1: Yeah, that's scary.
0: It's it's actually a really scary situation to be in. So it was for all of those reasons that investigators liked him for the murder. I mean, who wouldn't? That's pretty obvious.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of damning evidence against them.
0: When he found out he was the prime suspect... Against the advice of his lawyer, Arnold called the police station. He likes making phone calls. He asked if he was considered the prime suspect, and when he was told yes, he made an immediate appointment with his therapist. She, fearing that there was a possibility that Arnold would harm himself, recommended that he get a psych evaluation from the nearest hospital. Eventually, over time, the investigators ruled out Arnold because of his neurological condition. The fact that he had brain surgery and the fact that um, his father kind of checked out his alibi. And at the time, Tim Arnold was like house sitting for somebody else, but he couldn't drive. So his father had to pick him up from where he was house sitting, which was miles away from Churro. And then he drove him to... The house, like, Arnold would have never been able to drive himself to Krista's house from where he was staying. Right. Like, he wasn't at his own house when the murder took place.
1: Okay, so he has a solid alibi then.
0: Right, and the fact that he had just had brain surgery seven months prior. Right. Like, he wouldn't have been capable of doing all of that. Next, there was Tony Jacket, the married man and father to Ava. By the time the girl was two years old, it seemed like everyone on the cape knew that Jacket was the father of Ava. Because Krista was no longer with Tim Arnold, she was feeling the full weight of being a single parent. So what I what I think happened here was like, it was okay that Tony Jacket wasn't in the picture. Because at the time, Krista had Tim Arnold. He was helping with the care of Ava and the finances. But once they broke up, Krista's like, oh, being a single mother, it's, it's very difficult.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is true. I mean, you would think, though, that she would have a lot of help, though, because of all her family being in the neighborhood. But Well,
0: remember, she didn't have the exactly the best relationship with um, her parents. Um, it was always kind of like she wasn't living up to their standards. And, you know, maybe having a baby with a married man might have been one of those things. That's true.
1: You know, I, sometimes I am a little quick to forget. That's yes. true. That's true.
0: So, and she also didn't have a lot of money. She hadn't written anything for a while because, you know, she really threw herself into the care of Ava. So she wasn't even doing any of her fiction writing and she was worried about her family's money, which is something we'll get into later. So she reached out to Tony Jacket and she told him that she was going to be requesting child support from him. Jacket told investigators that he was really upset by this he and his wife were blue collar people who were supporting five kids some of them going through college and there were future weddings to pay for and he thought she's an heiress why can't she pay her own way so i mean (laughs) there's a little bit of a contention here and this is probably the catalyst as to why jacket told his wife he had to
1: yeah i mean i mean If he doesn't uh, give her the child support, then it's going to be garnished out of his salary regardless. Right.
0: But this is also a complicated one because, I mean, you could see both sides of this. Um, Yes, Jack, it does have a lot of family members to support. But at the same time, you did have an affair and you did get you did have unprotected sex with that woman. Even though she was told she can't have children, shouldn't you have been having protected sex because you're going back home to your wife?
1: Yeah, I So mean... <laughs> it's like, dude, I really yeah. kind of
0: don't feel bad for you that you would have to pay child support here. I feel bad for the rest of your family because you put them in this situation. And then at the same time, you know, like you see Chris side, like, I am a single mother support. I don't have a job right now, and I'm raising the daughter that we had together. So it's like, it's just... But then she's only asking when it's convenient for her. Like, I don't know. It's like, rare, it's really complicated. But I mean, he should have to pay...
1: Yeah, I mean, now I understand why uh, judges and lawyers make things, like, the the process is the way it is. Because look at both sides here in a case like this. This would be really hard if you were to... Well, maybe yeah. not hard, actually. No, I mean,
0: it would be cut and it dry. It would be, would
1: be cut and dry. But I could see, like, if there was more to it, how it could get a little over-complic- um, you know, co- overcomplicated.
0: Yeah, it's the court of public opinion where things get complicated. Yeah. So investigators thought that maybe either Jacket or his wife could be suspects in the murder. Both were interrogated separately. Shockingly, Susan Jacket told investigators that she had learned to live with the situation. At first she was angry, but she figured if she was going to stay with her husband, that she would have to come to terms with the way things were going to, to be. Susan admitted that when she got to know Krista, she ended up liking her a lot. She was kind and she knew boundaries, and she said that Ava was a doll. So they moved forward in their new very interesting dynamic. And this is a story that was also confirmed by family members and friends of Krista. They said that um Susan was just this amazing woman who was super accepting, never made Krista feel uncomfortable, and welcomed Ava into her family. So that is a wonderful woman.
1: Yeah, and and really rare. I mean yeah. most women or most women or men wouldn't usually tolerate that.
0: Uh, that's a hard pill to swallow, yeah, I would say. I would
1: think so. <laughs> yeah.
0: Finally, there was a third suspect we have not discussed yet. Unfortunately, Krista's mother had passed away from colon cancer in 1999. When she did, Krista's father, Toppy Worthington, what a name, moved full time to Boston. This is where he met his new girlfriend, who was 40 years his junior. Wow. I know the plot thickens. Now, this is not just your typical, like, sugar daddy situation. Elizabeth Porter had met Worthington, the Harvard-educated lawyer, when he hired her as an escort. He had taken a liking to her and chose to financially support her. He paid for her apartment, which was near his in Boston, and her lifestyle. On top of supporting her completely, he also paid for her drug habit, because Porter was a heroin addict. Like, if you're going to take on someone that's, like, 40 years younger than you, you'd think it'd be, like, a yoga instructor, not a heroin addict. But Toppy Worthington was a eccentric man.
1: Right. Well, she was also, she was a drug addict and also an escort. So, yeah, I mean, whatever. It, it is what it is. But, hey, I mean, <laughs> what whatever you tickles do? your fancy.
0: Yeah. So before her death, Krista was actually very concerned about her father's fortune. The money that was supposed to go to her and Ava upon his death was being squandered, she felt. And Ava's future inheritance was being wasted on his girlfriend's drug habit. She believed that her father was being selfish and not thinking about his family's legacy or his granddaughter's future. She had gotten lawyers involved to help prove that her father was not of sound mind because of the decisions that he was making, and she seemed to have a pretty good case. Topper Worthington first came to the attention of the investigation when he made strange comments and asked bizarre questions as they were telling him about his daughter's death. As they were trying to explain to him how her body had been discovered, he interrupted the officer and asked him if his daughter was found lying on her back with a lot of blood underneath her, and whether or not she had bruising on the right side of her face. Everything that he asked, strangely enough, was the case. When they asked him if he had a significant other, he told him that he did, but he didn't want to share her name because she had a hard past. If they wanted to find out what her name was, he was sure they could do it on their own. So after that, of course, they were going to find out and look into her, right? Like he was the one who brought attention to her, you know? So what they found out was that Elizabeth Porter was on probation. She had been arrested for prostitution and possession in the past. But more interestingly, she had a connection with another Massachusetts murder. She had been one of the salacious details in the murder case of Mabel Grinender, which could literally be a whole nother podcast. So... The man that she was involved with was a very distinguished allergist from Boston, and his wife was working as a nurse in his practice. They had three children together. And on Halloween night, 1999, while walking in a nearby park, the man claimed that his wife's back hurt, so he told her to wait while he went off and exercised their dog. When he returned, he claimed that he found his wife badly beaten and stabbed. In fact, she had been nearly decapitated. He called the police and maintained that it must have been a thrill kill on Halloween night, like he already had it planned. Gloves, a hammer, and pocket knife were found in a nearby drain, but no prints could be pulled from them. While investigating, They found that Dr. Greinender went by the alias of Thomas Young. He used the name while talking on online sex chat rooms and with phone sex operators. He also hired many prostitutes and brought them to his home and his office. And one of those prostitutes was Elizabeth Porter. She had to testify at his trial. Eventually, he was found guilty of murder, and it was believed that he either killed his wife himself or that he had hired someone to do it so he could keep up with his extramarital affairs. So, well, he does still maintain his innocence, but Elizabeth Porter was involved in that case.
1: Okay. so that's interesting.
0: It's interesting that this is the second guy that she's been involved with that is a suspect of murder. Yeah. So, like, police are thinking maybe if she was able to convince this doctor to kill his wife, maybe she could convince Toppy Worthington, who she's already convinced to do so many other things, to kill his daughter.
1: Yeah. And then you have to think, uh, like, why, too, you know? Like, would it maybe because, like, she wanted all the money and that she didn't want it to go to the daughter, maybe? Right. It's possible.
0: So they're looking into this. Yeah. So this is a little interesting and they thought, okay, maybe there there could be a connection here because it was true that like Krista was in the way of her getting the money or like even stopping the lifestyle and the drug habit that she had because she was trying to control, like become the power of attorney for her father. So when Toppy Worthington and Elizabeth Porter were brought in for questioning, they said what their alibis were. Toppy said that he was in his apartment sleeping on Friday night, and Porter told investigators the exact same story. However, later she admitted that she had been with her boyfriend, yes, her boyfriend, a man named Eddie, in her separate apartment. They were getting high that night, and Eddie's employer confirmed that the man had called out of work that night for his shift that was supposed to be from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., It appeared that Toppy Worthington was actually supplying drugs, not just for his young girlfriend, but also her boyfriend.
1: So, okay, so this is getting a little muddy here. I mean, this is is interesting Mm -hmm. because now we understand what could be a possible motive now.
0: Yes, not only is it that it's going to affect her drug habit, but it's also going to affect her boyfriend's drug habit. So now we can kind of, because they were in separate apartments, and I'm sure this is where, like, police minds were going as well, Toppy Worthington might not have even been involved. It might have just been Elizabeth Porter and her boyfriend who committed this murder, and then later on she told Toppy Worthington.
1: Yeah, you might be right about that.
0: So all three of them were given lie detector tests. Eddie's results were inconclusive, but both Toppy Worthington and Elizabeth Porter failed their test. Porter had blamed drug withdrawals, and Toppy, ever the lawyer, made no comment. The question that recorded the highest deception was, were you involved in the planning of Krista Worthington's murder? But obviously we know lie detector tests are inadmissible in court, but in reality this meant that investigators working on Krista's case really had three to four pretty strong suspects all with a reason to kill Krista Worthington. However, the prosecutors could not arrest or bring charges against any of them. Why? Because of the autopsy. Based on a rape kit that had been performed, it had been determined that there had not been any sexual trauma. So medical examiners determined that no rape occurred. However, they had taken a swab of semen from her vaginal canal. And on her body, saliva was found present on um, her breast. Tim Arnold, Tony Hackett, Susan Hackett, Topper Worthington, Elizabeth Porter, and her boyfriend Eddie had all given DNA samples and none of them matched either. So, if any one of them were charged with the murder, even the most basic of defense attorneys would be able to prove reasonable doubt just by saying, well, whose DNA was on her body?
1: Right. But that's all fine and dandy. Mm-hmm. But, and I, I hate to say it this way, but, I mean, if she was known in the past to have, you know, uh, you know, to be with other men at certain times, could it be possible that she had someone there? Or maybe she was...
0: It's entirely You know, if she was just
1: with somebody way before... Um, you know, right. someone actually broke in and killed her.
0: Like, she could have had a sexual relationship with somebody and then been murdered later.
1: Or right after, or, or you know what I'm saying? Like, it could have yeah. been somebody that she was well, I think, with. Well,
0: I think that if the medical examiner's opinion would have come back to say she was raped, then I think I completely believe that. Like, no, we need to know whose DNA sample that is. But because it wasn't determined that she was raped then I don't think it really is that pressing. But, I mean, we know how the American justice system works and all you need is reasonable doubt. So I think they really wanted a slam dunk and what the investigators wanted to find out was whose DNA was this so we can get the entire story. So to do their due diligence, the investigators also questioned everyone that Krista had regular contact with because this crime did seem very personal. And the person that committed the crime was clearly in a rage but they had no luck with that angle either. So that brings us to 2005. Three years had passed and no one had been charged with the murder of 46-year-old Krista Worthington. Now, at that point, Ava, um, one of Krista's friends, actually received custody of Ava, not Tony Jacket. but But he did have visitation rights. So the investigators chose to use a very controversial tactic they issue a statement that they have not been able to find the person that the DNA found at the Worthington crime scene belonged to. So they were asking all 790 male residents from Truro to voluntarily give a DNA sample to police.
1: Wow. Okay. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a big undertaking.
0: Uh, it's a huge sweep. Um, and it's also, um, like they're saying, okay, we're requesting this of you. Um, What what comes into play here is um, this becomes part of national news because they're saying, please give us a sample of your DNA so we can eliminate you in the DNA sample at Crystal Worthington's crime scene. But if you say you don't want to give me a sample of your DNA, we're going to put you on a list and we're going to start investigating you. So now that goes against your constitutional rights. So it becomes a constitutional issue here, right? So you shouldn't have to do that and you shouldn't be kind of like black, not blackmailed, but like feared into giving a DNA sample because now what's that DNA sample going to be used for in the future?
1: That's true. That's true. I mean, I guess the, the, it it really depends on, you know, whether or not you think you're innocent though too. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't feel comfortable with it, but at the same time, well, I don't want anybody to think I killed somebody. So yeah, sure.
0: Right. And that's kind of like what some people thought, but then other people thought like, well, what happens if now like the police now have a sample of my DNA and something might happen in the future and I'm connected to another crime scene? Like it's just, it's, people didn't feel comfortable doing it. And the police were kind of like, they were at the grocery store, they were at the dump, they were at town hall. And every time someone went in, they would say like, Do you feel comfortable giving us a sample? And if they said no, they recorded their name and they were uncomfortable with that. Another reason why this all came up as a controversy was because the Massachusetts State Crime Labs already had a backlog of DNA testing. There were samples from suspects or people that knew Krista that they had taken from 10 months prior that still haven't been tested. So it's kind of like you're creating a further backlog in these state testing labs that really need to test other things that are more, like, relevance.
1: Right. Of course.
0: So, I mean, it was a crazy thing to do.
1: I think what they were trying to do was just to eliminate all suspects within the, the city limits or the town limits.
0: Yeah, and I think they were trying to say, like, hey, look, we're still really trying here three years later. Right. In total, the investigators were able to collect 100 to 150 DNA samples, which really isn't a lot when you think of the 790 male residents there are. But before they could even begin prioritizing them and testing them, a positive result came back from someone that they had taken a sample from back in 2004. His name was Christopher McCowan. He had been originally interviewed in April of 2003, when investigators were interviewing people that had contact with Krista on a regular basis. McCowan was a sanitary worker for a company called Cape Cod Disposables, and Depot Road was part of his route. When he was interviewed back in 03, he stated that he did collect the disposables from the residence of Krista Worthington, which was 50 Depot Road. He was asked if he knew her, and she said no. He was asked if he was ever asked to go up to her house to dispose of every anything and he replied no remember her house is it's like almost a 200 foot long driveway so like he didn't like see you can't see the house from the road
1: right he would have to have traveled up the road to see it so correct
0: then he was asked if he knew about her murder and he said he only knew what had been reported on the news and then he gave them a voluntary dna sample But it wasn't collected at that interview. It was actually collected at a later interview that took place in 2004. On April 7, 2005, McCowan was woken up from his bed and he was arrested by plainclothes officers. Cameras were already on him. The arrest of the 33-year-old black man added a layer of complication that did not seem possible to this already complicated case. So before we get into the evidence against McCowan and the subsequent trial, let's first discuss who he is. McCowan was born in Oklahoma in 1972. He was close with his father, who had joined the military after an early career of printing newspapers. His father recalled in interviews held with 2020 that his son Christopher suffered from epilepsy as a child. The seizures were mild and not the violent grand mal type but they still affected him and the family. It would take two hours to get to the nearest hospital, and the family had to make many trips. From a young age, McCowan was strong and athletic, which allowed him to excel on the football field. However, in the classroom, he struggled. He was placed in special education classroom that did not really meet his needs or encourage him. As he dropped out his senior year of high school. That's always so sad when kids do that. I mean yeah, because you're it's like, like you're right there. there. you right, right there. It would later be determined that McCowan had an IQ of seventy-six, so he had a very low IQ. After he dropped out of high school, his father moved to Key West, Florida. And this is when McCowan began to get in trouble. He had stolen checks from his grandmother, whom he was living with at the time, and because of this he was told that he had to move in with his father in Key West. There he found himself in more trouble. One day, When his 16-year-old friend stole a moped and brought it over to his house, the two boys began to ride it all over town. They were stopped by a police officer who recognized the description of the stolen moped. Because McCowan was 18 at the time, he was charged with grand theft and sentenced to 18 months in prison. So he spent 1993 and most of 1994 behind bars. After he got out of prison, McCowan had no problem for the next four years. He met a girl named Pam and had a daughter with her. Pam eventually broke up with him, but his father said that he really cared about Pam and his daughter, so he had tried to win her back whenever he got the chance. In 1998, Pam decided to relocate to Cape Cod, where she was originally from and McCowan chose to follow her. So that's how Chris McCowan ended up in Cape Cod. While there, he got a job with a sanitation company. He moved into a cottage where most of the workers lived because the man that actually owned the disposable company owned a complex of cottages that he rented to his workers for a good price. Chris made close friends with the man whom he shared his route with, and he lived next to him. After a few years, McCowan realized that Pam no longer wanted to be with him, so he began dating around. In 2000, he began dating a woman named Kelly. He also had a daughter with her and invited her to come move into the cottage with him, and she accepted. But just because he was a father again and he had a live-in girlfriend did not mean that McCowan was going to remain faithful. His friend and co stated that McCowan had a lot of girlfriends, and a few of them were the women that were on their disposables route. However, when McCowan did give his interviews, he denied knowing Krista, so they didn't think that, you know, she was one of the women that he was involved with. So before we get into the interrogation that took place once McCowan was arrested, let's take a look at the evidence they have against him so far to arrest him. The first thing that they have is the DNA linking him to the victim. His semen was found in the body of Krista Worthington and traces of his saliva were found on her body. However, we do know that it was not concluded that Krista had been raped, so it could have been a consensual sexual relationship. And we do know that meant that McCowan had not been entirely truthful with investigators when he was questioned in 2003 and then again in 2004. Um... But that could have been for several reasons. First, we know he's a black man being questioned for the murder of a wealthy white woman and might have just been trying to protect himself in that interview. Um, So we need to talk about the demographics a little bit of Cape Cod. So in 2005 and still now in 2020, the African-American demographic of Cape Cod, which is a massive region of Massachusetts, is only 1.4%. The second thing the investigators believed that they had on McCowan was the fact that he is a repeat offender, as he has three prior restraining orders. So let's analyze those restraining orders. The first dates back to 1998 and was taken out by his girlfriend at the time, Pam. She stated that he had pushed her and she was nervous because in the past he had choked her. So she wanted to obtain a restraining order and it was granted The next restraining order came in 1999 from another ex-girlfriend. She claimed that he had shattered the window of her car during an argument. So, I mean, he has two violent restraining orders out on him.
1: Right. I mean, he has some tendencies um, to get violent. violent, Yeah.
0: Now, the third restraining order that I think actually hurts the case of police is this one. So the report came from 1999 when McCowan was 26 years old. He had become friendly with a girl who was working at Dunkin' Donuts that he frequented. She was having trouble at home, and she would talk to him about it, and she would say that she really wanted to run away. One night, the girl planned to run away, but um, he told her that she could just spend the night at his house instead of, you know, what she wanted to do, which was hitchhike kind of out of Cape Cod. And he said, that's not really a safe thing to do. Why don't you just cool down, spend the night at my house? When the mother of the girl, who was 16 years old at the time, found out that her daughter was missing, she called the police. Based on testimony of her friends, when police asked around, they found out that she was actually at McCowan's house. So when the girl was brought back home, the police told the girl's mother that she should take her to the hospital and get a rape kit performed. Isn't that insane?
1: Uh, Under what advisement? Like, what would would give...
0: Because she spent the night at McAllen's house.
1: And that she she didn't mention anything that uh, anything that no, happened, right? No. So just because she, she was there. No. I mean, I do think it's odd to have a 16-year-old at your house, but...
0: I do think the situation <clears throat> is odd. Yeah. And that it could look really bad. But the girl was in no trauma and, like, voluntarily was like, okay, I'll go back home to my mom. And they're like, get a rape kit?
1: Bizarre. That's yes. a little bizarre. Yes.
0: So... And then the mother did wow yeah i mean like okay so whatever um the results came back negative the girl had not been raped nor had she had any sexual activity when the woman went to the police station and asked them okay what should i do there my daughter wasn't raped by chris mccowan they said take a restraining order out on him like what what i it's a very bizarre situation. I mean, I, I mean, it's pretty outrageous, and it would be hard to say, would this have been done if Chris McCowan was a white guy?
1: Yeah, oh. I, I agree with that. I, well, you know what I do want to say, though, too, is how about the fact, wh- why is your child running away from your home? How about that? Forget the restraining order. Why is your kid leaving? Why does your kid not want to be in your presence in your home? But yet, that's not something that we look into. We look at the fact that, This kid was at some guy's house and because he was African-American, that's why they ordered a rape kit and now they want to fill out a restraining order. So it's just like...
0: It's a very bizarre situation. It's a little weird. A little weird. It smells a little bit. A little fishy. So later, the woman and her daughter would make statements stating that the restraining order had been a mistake and that McCowan should never have been penalized for anything. That, in fact, the night that the girl stayed over his apartment... All they had done was watch movies and fall asleep. The mother only listened to the advice of police because she was scared that her daughter was going to run away again. So she was like kind of under the impression of like, okay, if I get this restraining order, maybe my daughter won't go to his house. Maybe she'll stay home. So the mother said she was misguided and that she apologizes and that the restraining order should have never been taken out. And she actually thanks Chris McCowan for kind of like protecting her daughter when she was going to put herself in an even worse situation. Okay,
1: that's good. I mean, now at least kind of an explanation as to why it was taken out. Yeah,
0: But I will say um, this is very polarizing, which, I mean, the rest of this entire case is going to become polarizing. But you have two restraining orders that show there has been some type of domestic violence taking place. But then you have another restraining order showing... um, a good side of this man. That's true. So yeah. it's it's complicated to kind of like take in and, and kind of see like, okay, this guy kind of might have two sides to him. Mm-hmm. So in total, that is what they had against Chris McCowan. The matching DNA and prior restraining orders. So he was arrested at 7.15 p.m. on April 14, 2005, three years after the murder. He was booked and questioned. He was taken from a boarding house. This being 10 months after he gave the DNA sample, his life had changed. He was no longer working for the disposal company and McCowan, when he was brought in, waived his Miranda rights at the beginning of the interrogation. He also declined that the police film the interaction. However, this is something that he is later going to claim that he does not remember saying. So all we have from this encounter it becomes a six hour interrogation is a 27 page transcript of what happened, which I'm sure, you know, doesn't give the reader the full picture, right? You don't know inflections. You don't know what's said. You don't know if someone sounds scared, angry, intimidated. You, you don't. It's really hard to read a transcript. And I don't want
1: to tell you right now, if it's a six hour interrogation, you can't sit here and tell me that. They're gonna to continue to interrogate him until he breaks down and just confesses to anything, or says something that could implicate him further. I right. I mean, you know what I'm saying. If you want to leave, you you know you want to be able to just get the hell out of there. And if you're there for six hours, right, that's draining.
0: And I'm gonna say something um, here, just to interject. I don't believe that this entire interview was transcribed for this reason alone. This podcast, like we're kind of in the middle of recording it, it's probably going to end up being like an hour and 45 minutes. My transcript of this podcast is 23 pages long. So if you've been talking for six hours and talking is kind of like a flow, there should be so many more pages than 27.
1: Right. So you're saying that it's possible that a majority of it it was concocted or like just No, no,
0: no. Like not included. or just
1: Oh, just not put in there. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right,
0: because it's interesting to me that we can talk for twenty three pages and it's only two hours.
1: Right, no, I so see what you're
0: it, I mean, where's the other? Yeah, where's the other two thirds of their yeah. conversation?
1: And you know, I'm sure that there might be things in there that are needed and are crucial towards the investigation.
0: Yeah, it's just I, I, the twenty seven pages doesn't seem like yeah enough to me. Also, no. the
1: fact that you know they apparently he waived his Miranda rights.
0: That yeah
1: was also, not a smart choice. Yeah, also uh, to to not have it recorded. The inter- I'm talking about the interrogation to not be recorded yeah. is actually a bad move. Yeah,
0: and he's going to say that he denies saying that he didn't want it filmed, but I mean now we can't. We don't know.
1: Well, it would make sense that he doesn't remember because think about it. If now we think that the transcripts are kind of like botched a little bit, mm-hmm. what's to say that they never. They on purpose didn't record it. You get it?
0: Yeah, I know what you're saying. Like,
1: so just based on on the transcript being botched, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't throw it past them to just they never told them about it. Right. And I hate to put it this way as well, but if he's a lower IQ or he has no counsel, um, I would lean towards that being kind of effed up too.
0: Uh, right. Yeah, hundred percent. So the interview lasted six hours in total. McCowan retold the story that he did in 2004. He had never been in the victim's house and he never spoke with her. He admitted to having sex with some women on his trash route, but she had not been one of them. He confirmed the last time he picked up disposables from Krista's property was on Thursday, the day before she was supposedly murdered. He also stated that whoever committed the crime must have been drunk or high when they did it because they were stupid that he would never do something like that because he was, as police in Florida once put it, a smart criminal. For example, he would have never killed the woman in front of her child. After confirming in two separate stories and explanations that he did not know Krista, he only picked up her garbage, investigators continued to apply pressure. And that is when his story changed. The biggest reason for McCowan's story to change was the DNA report that the investigators had handed him. In the transcript, it states that he read the report for a few minutes and then placed it back down on the table and said, it could have been me. I could have had sex with her, but I don't remember Fridays and Saturdays because those are my party days. When he was asked uh, where he was that night and what his party days consisted of, he explained that he usually drank a lot, consumed pot, and sometimes took prescription medication. The place he went to was almost always um, a bar called the Juice Bar, which is an underage club. So, like, you could get in if you're 18, but, you know, like, if you're 21, you get, like, an X on your hand kind of place. Okay. He said that on Friday, um, the day in which the a murder took place he was at the juice bar with his friend Jeremy Fraser. later when police checked in with the juice bar they stated that there was actually a rap contest that night and Frazier was a contestant in the rap battle I guess you can call it I won't play the sound there's like audio of it but it's horrific so I would never make you subject you guys to that Frazier's performance was videotaped and McCowan could be seen in the background of the video. So it is confirmed the two of them were at the juice bar together. McCowan began the story by explaining that he had drunk so much that night that he had blacked out. He said that when he was at the juice bar, he had asked Frazier to drive him to Krista's house. He told Frazier there's a girl I want to have sex with, but that he couldn't drive because he was too drunk and he was nervous about getting a DUI. He said that Frazier did drive him to the house, and they both went inside. McCowan stated that he had sex with Krista. When he was asked where he had sex with her, he said it was in her hallway or in the living room, but he couldn't remember. There was like a lewd comment that was made in the transcript, but it alluded to the fact that he was having sex with her. Uh, McCowan confirmed that after the sex, everything was cool. And this didn't make sense to investigators because what are the chances that someone else entirely showed up to the house that night? So they ask one more question. At what time was this? Because like if you had sex and everything was cool and you guys left, we need to know what time that was. And he said that had to be around 1.15 or 1.45 a.m. And then he added, well, everything was okay until Krista had found out that she... While she was having sex with him, that Fraser had been going through her things. She confronted him, and the two men tried to leave the house. However, Krista ran out of the house screaming at them, calling them thieves and assholes. So, when she ran back into her house, they could see through the window that she was trying to um, dial something on her cell phone, and that was when Fraser ran into the house. And he kicked the door when he went inside. And McCowan said that um, minutes later, he returned outside of the house and he was sweaty and saying it was taken care of.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So this might be the friend now, for all we know.
0: Well, investigators asked him if there had been a confrontation outside of the house because Based on the evidence at the crime scene, there had been a struggle outside as well as inside. And then this is when the third story was given to police. McCowan said that actually when Krista ran outside to confront them about Fraser stealing her things, Fraser hit her twice in the face and that was when she tried to run back inside the house. This is when he and Fraser chased her and they were able to get the phone away from her. And then as he put it, he said, we put the boots to her, both of them attacking her. Frasier was the one he said who stopped to get the knife and he stabbed her in the chest. Then he took off his shirt, which was covered in blood, and he wrapped the phone, which couldn't be found later on, the knife and Krista's purse inside. See, um, so this is a confession of being present to the murder, taking on the fact that he did physically attack her but he's saying that he wasn't the one who murdered her but it is interesting that as the police are asking questions his story is changing to make it fit what the police are saying like in his first account he said there was no altercation outside But then they said like that doesn't make sense there was something that happened outside and then he goes oh yeah that's right we did beat her up outside so it's like it's it's interesting. It's like, I don't know what happened. Really. Yeah.
1: Well, that's true. But it also seems like now maybe the police might be kind of leading, the questioning. Yes. To fit what evidence they have. So I'm not too sure here either now, because I what I'm what I was thinking was this. Just just hear me out on this one. Um, this is not a final theory, but something that I just don't want to forget, so I want to mention it. Um, think about this, the neighbor. Her, you know, on and off boyfriend, right? Yes. Now, I know that there's no, nobody said that he was there or anything, but let me ask you this. If there was something that happened outside, as, as... Well, the homes were very far apart. mm.
0: So, I don't think they would be there.
1: Yeah, you're right. Because what I was going to say was if, if something else took place outside, then you would think that he would have seen that because he was such a stalker that he would have saw what happened. Well,
0: no, because remember, he was house-sitting miles away. And he wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So,
1: yeah, I truly have no idea then what happened here. That's bizarre.
0: So this is the final version that the police are going to go with. Like, I feel like they felt like, okay, we got it. We're done. So they kind of close it. The police have their motive. She was killed because she was calling 911. However, the sergeant working on the case said one final thing to McCowan before the interview is done. And this is on the transcript. I think that you were alone. So immediately, immediately, before they even hear from Frazier, they're saying, no, it was just you.
1: Okay. Isn't
0: that insane?
1: Right. So so even though he said that he was driven there by him, he was there, they're right. trying to say, no, 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 you were there alone and you did this. Yeah. That's pretty much what they're saying. Yeah. So it's almost like she, this, guy's, this dude's taking a fall for something that this other dude, Frazier, could have done.
0: And unfortunately, Chris McCowan said this, well... If Jeremy, meaning Frasier, can account for his time, then I guess it's all on me. And that's it. Ah. So in reality, um, McCowan never really admitted to killing Krista. He claimed he had sex with her, aided in her physical assault, but it was Frasier who killed her. Now, the police clearly didn't believe that Fraser was the murderer. They believed that it was McCowan. So they did bring in... Frazier. So he was coming in for questioning. It's also important to say that during the time of this interrogation that McCowan was under the influence of prescription drugs and marijuana at his house when he had been arrested, there had been um, four freshly smoked joints, four, and he admitted to have taken two Percocets. On top of that, his very low IQ could have affected statements made during the interrogation. So is this a valid interrogation? Oh,
1: no, no, it's not.
0: And do we even have the whole thing?
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think this was either. I mean, he. there are a lot of things that went wrong during and even before and after the uh, interrogation process. So I don't know. I'm not going to say, although he definitely didn't do it because of all the screw ups. But something mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. The one thing I will say is there's no doubt in my mind. Right now, I guess that he did have sex with her.
0: Oh yeah, of he course. did
1: know that he did, but I think everything else is kind of a, a blur to us because we can't really.
0: This is a hard one.
1: Yeah, we can't really. It seems like he's being framed.
0: He was there. Yeah, he had sex with her. The rest is a mystery.
1: And like, and then like, when you hear all this stuff, you're starting to forget. Okay, what about what about Toppy? What about the the drug addicts that he was funding? Yeah, like that was just completely what, forgot we just about. Forget about the whole thing. So it's like you know i mean tinfoil hat right but like then there's so many
0: suspects could it could
1: it be that the you know could they be involved because Mm -hmm. of his status as a lawyer could it affected the way the the cops handled it um there's like so many factors here yeah maybe that you know toppy's you know girlfriend girlfriend and her boyfriend (laughs) <laughs> had something to do with it, but then Toppy was able to kind of um, flip it somehow. Maybe he knew people internally. It's a small town, right? Well,
0: I mean, and who's a better fall guy,
1: right? Correct. Then somebody who just uh, came into the into the town, got a job. Yeah, he was he only, only there been for a little for while, four years. Four years. Well, you know, he's African American. Just saying, because maybe that was like their reasoning for it. Who knows? Yeah. Right. And then it was just so it, he just so happened to be having sex with you know. um Oh my gosh! What's her name? Krista. Krista I'm sorry, with Krista. But listen, he was do He he admitted that he was having sex with other women on the route. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. Is it just wrong place, wrong time? I'm not sure.
0: I don't know, but it is hard to say. And then they're like, we're not going to skirt around it. Like there is a racial impact on this case. Oh no, 100%, there, there is. There so is. we're not going to yeah. pretend it's not there. It's there. Um, Blatantly. And I think that it, you know it might have played a big factor here. Yeah. So in another interrogation room, Frazier is being questioned, and he's being treated very differently than McCowan, um, despite the fact that he might be a murderer. Analysts will later call into question whether or not um, this is because he was white in a predominantly white town, but we do know that, you know, everything was different in the way that these two men were brought in.
1: Now, I wonder if he was recorded. Was his session recorded? Because that would be... Interesting.
0: No, it wasn't.
1: Okay. All right.
0: So um, this is what Frazier claimed happened the night that Krista Worthington was murdered. He said that he was at the juice bar with McCowan and his friend Sean Mulvey. He said that he and Mulvey had performed in the rap contest that night, something that was also backed up from the video at the juice bar because they have um, footage of Mulvey as well. After they were at the juice bar, the three of them went to a house party where they got Wasted. And a fight had broken out at the house party, which made everyone have to leave because the police were coming. Um, there was obviously a lot of underage drinking happening. Fraser said that he went home with Mulvey and that McCowan left on his own, but he didn't know where he had gone. When Sean Mulvey was interviewed, he at first said that he did not remember if Frazier had stayed the night and he really didn't want to get involved in the investigation. However, months later, and let me emphasize the word months later, Mulvey changed his story and confirmed Fraser's alibi, saying that Fraser did spend the night, but no one could confirm that as his father had been away during the time and couldn't confirm that it was true. In the end, investigators believed that this was enough to believe the alibi of Jeremy Fraser and that Chris McCowan alone was the one responsible for the murder of Krista Worthington. But you know what this whole account takes out for me? If Chris McCowan was that wasted, how could he have gotten to?
1: Right. Unless he drove on his own. Right. But then he. It's funny because both of them are saying that they were too intoxicated to drive, right?
0: Somebody drove.
1: Somebody drove the car here. And I think that it's funny that, oh, now now, uh, the other guy's coming in with.
0: Hold on. Sorry. I just want to interject. They both have a history of DUIs. Okay. Okay.
1: Okay. So somebody obviously drove, uh, drove the car to the, to the, her house. Okay. What I think is funny though how is how the friends like at first you know he wasn't sure and that and now we're going into months later how he's changing his story. So now it's like how could you even trust that alibi? Now he had he had time to get a story straight. Correct. He had a time to 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 make sure that everything was the way it needed to be. So I think that it shouldn't even count it should be it should be just like null and void your your yeah. testimony your uh your testimony doesn't really mean anything you saying that you you can account for this guy's whereabouts should be thrown out the window yeah months uh,
0: yeah
1: it's months uh, months that he could have just had to talk to him and be like hey look i need you to Come cover on, for please. me please yeah. cover for me it's and, and to get their story to uh to be on the same page so i don't know
0: it's a little interesting there's a lot of
1: there's a lot of players in this Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of shit that happened between the father and the and the daughter and there's so much involved here
0: i know so the police issue a statement the same day that they charge chris mccallan and they tell everyone on the cape that they could rest easy knowing that even though it was three years later they had caught worthington's killer now this who-done-it murder had captivated the Cape and made everyone suspicious of each other. Their lives really had changed after the brutal murder of Krista. But the fear and the fascination with the case had been localized. And if you ask anyone that either lives on Cape Cod or vacations on Cape Cod, because um, I know some people that do vacation every year on Cape Cod, everyone Knew about this murder, and they everyone was a suspect, so it was like scary. You're like, okay, you're going out somewhere, and because such like a small like, so localized, it's like, is there a murder in this room right now? Like that's how people felt for years. Yeah,
1: but it's it's, you know, it's funny. It's like a witch hunt, you know, trying to figure out, like, you know, oh, just they're gonna even the samples. Mm -hmm. Everyone asking, you know, they're asking everyone for samples. It's like a wild witch hunt. They don't know what to do so just go after everybody in
0: the town and then what happens with witch hunts is there's always a scapegoat found right so after the arrest of chris mccowan um this case became national news a wealthy fashion writer white woman was murdered by a poorly educated black garbage man right and that's how the headlines read yeah and it became a news storm like the media was in cape cod from the time that he was arrested till the time the trial took place because it was like well wait a second here and the news was just as polarized as the nation was because some were were reporting the case saying oh Krista Worthington would have never had sex with a garbage man on her route and then some people were saying well you know sometimes like her history and her sexual exploits might have said otherwise and then people said well that's victim blaming and then it became this whole shitstorm basically yeah. for a lack of a better word and you know people were denying that there was a racial issue with this but i mean there's never been a more clear racial issue yeah you know just because it's 2005 still a racial issue it doesn't go away
1: and the evidence shows it too like the interviews the the botched you know interrogate you know interrogation it's just like the whole thing screens that to me yeah normally listen if it's i always believe that that you know there's always a possibility for anything right anything is possible but the way that it was blatantly done in front of everyone just proves that
0: yeah there was a bias clearly
1: 100 percent.
0: but i will say this chris mccowan may have killed krista worthington he is just as viable as a suspect as Elizabeth Porter and her boyfriend, her father, Tim Arnold, and Tony Hackett. So, I mean, he, he could possibly be the person, but this is my thing. As police officers, they should be going about this the correct, and investigators, they should be going about this the correct way. They've done a good job Saying, this guy's a suspect, ruling him out. This guy's a suspect, possibly ruling him out, but keeping him on the table. So why now insert your bias and, like, destroy the work that you've done? Because if you, you're you going to put a guy away for brutally murdering someone, don't you want to do it the right way? So now he can't Absolutely. do anything on an appeal process?
1: I know this sounds crazy, but I would rather have been a cold case, right, than... Put the wrong man in there. Well, you don't know. For every case. Right, yeah. exactly. Because you don't know. If you don't have enough information to say this man did it, but you're not sure. Right. I'm sorry. You can't you just you can't, can't falsely not even you know what I'm saying. It's just if it's not enough, it's not enough. If right. there's not enough evidence, you shouldn't be putting somebody away for something they might not have done.
0: I completely agree. So
1: it should stay a cold case until someone something else whether some other evidence comes up that could be presented or another person could be interviewed that were there to witness something. And until that could happen, no one should be put in jail.
0: I agree with you. Well, throughout the entire investigation, for three years, it was never brought up by anyone, anyone, that Krista Worthington was raped. The medical examiner said that there was no evidence of rape from the rape kit that was performed. And throughout the entire investigation, the police never stated that Krista Worthington was raped, nor did they bring this up during any of the interrogations of any of the suspects. However, once Chris McCowan was arrested, he was charged with burglary and murder. Obviously, those charges are to be expected. But he was also charged with aggravated rape.
1: How can you be charged with aggravated rape? When there's no evidence of rape. There's no evidence of rape.
0: They're saying the evidence of rape was the semen inside of her. However, the rape kit determined there was no rape. Right. And rape kits are extremely accurate. Hmm. So it was considered to be um, an aggravated rape is uh, you get a higher sentence for aggravated rape because that just means um the rape was committed during the commission of other crimes. So like the act is the same as forcible rape, but the sentence you get is is higher, right? And of course, you know, this just added another salacious detail to this already insane crime. The trial will take place one year after the arrest. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an overview here of what happened. Of course, McCowan pleaded guilty. Um, I believe that McCowan had a defense attorney that really fought for him based and he based his case off of two things. First, his goal was to poke holes at the story of the prosecution as any good offense attorney should do, but then he also was creating a different timeline, stating that, in fact, something else entirely took place, and that McCowan had been mistaken during his six-hour interrogation. The prosecution is going to present the 27-page document, which was, they believed, McCowan's confession, and a DNA expert who would state that, without any doubt, it was McCowan and only McCowan's DNA That was found at the crime scene. Now, the assistant district attorney that was prosecuting the case also had a bit of an agenda here um, because he was from the Welsh family. And the Welsh family is a very known legal family on the Cape. They were four generations of judges. So the ADA was looking to continue his family's legacy by becoming a judge. And this was most likely the case that would catapult his career. It's like... (laughs) You couldn't even, like, make up all these friggin' details. It's yeah. nuts. This
1: is, like, a like a real good movie, you know? Um, yeah, unfortunately, so... it's real.
0: <laughs> yes. McCowan's defense attorney is going to state that the hardest thing that he had to do during the trial was pick a jury. Cape Cod, for all of its beauty and association with New England high society and old money, was a very blue-collar area. Especially to those who lived in the Cape year-round, right? I mean... Most of the wealthy people only came up in the summer and then, you know, they kind of like provided for the wealthy people when they were there on vacation. The Worthingtons were one of the exceptions because their wealth had been made on the Cape. So they stayed there year round. But because of the blue collar environment, those who were there year round, they worked. And that was who Chris McCowan was. He had to work hard for his money and he lived paycheck to paycheck. So wouldn't someone who understood that struggle be um, a peer to him, right? Your jury's supposed to be, you know, juror of your peers. Well, the problem was that these people were all turned away as jurors because they were the sole providers of their home. So they couldn't miss work. So now he's not being able to have access to those people as a jury of his peers. And second, McCowan is African-American man. And the African-American population on Cape Cod is quite small. Like we said, um, 1.4%. And in the end, only two jurors were African-American. One man who was 50% African-American and 50% Native American. And a woman who was a stay-at-home mother who had just moved to the area.
1: Let's be real, though. Could they have really given him a fair trial? No. Could they have really gotten the right jury. I think this happens
0: it. in a lot of cases where there is an impossibility in providing a jury of of the defendant's peers.
1: I almost feel like it should be a neutral site somehow. There could be like a neutral site where it's completely Well,
0: sometimes they try to do that.
1: They do. And and maybe that should have happened with him.
0: Well, I think that this case was so explosive on Cape Cod that it most definitely should have been tried somewhere else.
1: And then that also kind of begs the question, like, is media always a good thing, right? I mean... Because... because no, you because have, everyone's biased Right, now. exactly. So, you know, it, media does help, but it could also really damage uh, a case, so...
0: No, I completely agree. So now I'm going to highlight the things that took place during the trial and the points that were made. The prosecution showed the crime scene pictures, which were brutal. Let's not forget, Krista Worthington was badly beaten, stabbed violently through her chest, um, hard enough for it to go through her entire body and hit the wood floor beneath her. The added detail that her daughter was left with the body and her mother, and that she had tried to clean up her mother's blood and breastfeed from her was something that produced a visceral effect on not just the jury, but also everyone watching the trial, which um, I want to add was every major news outlet in the country. Arnold came in to testify about finding the body, and it took days to go over the forensics. The prosecution was able to determine that there was no doubt that the semen inside of Krista Worthington and the saliva on her breast belonged to Chris McCowan. However, the defense was able to cross examine the expert and the expert did state that the semen sample that was found on Krista's body was degenerated, meaning that the sperm had lost their tail, which means that the semen sample was not fresh and rather old, older than it would have been. Like, say she say she was raped at the time she was murdered, which was early Saturday, Saturday like, morning, like, around 1 a.m., 2 a.m., the sample wouldn't have degenerated as much as it did by the time they took the swab when her body was found. So they're saying that the semen sample found inside of her body was from way before that.
1: Well, he did have sex with her.
0: He did have sex with her. That's not... But it happened before the murder. Correct. So that's... But the one thing that that couldn't explain, though, is the saliva sample that was found on her breast. Unless he put his mouth on her body during the murder because i can't imagine them having sex say on thursday and then she doesn't take a shower do you know what i'm saying yes
1: uh, yeah so that it's I'm not the too saliva sure
0: sample it does not explain that another point that was made during the trial was that mccowan had diminished capacity and like we said um the 27 page report shouldn't be counted first Um, They talked about how six hours of talking could never equate to 27 pages. There should be more, at least 100. And they're going to say that McCowan, um, he has an IQ of 76. And a forensic psychologist is going to testify that those with low IQs are more susceptible to manipulation and long term pressure of interrogation, which he was put under for six hours, may make him comply to a story that did not happen. We do know that false confessions are very real. In his mind, he might have just wanted to get out of the room. He also admitted in the transcript that he had smoked four joints and taken two Percocets that night. So he was very, very high. And on top of that all, um, within the 27 pages, McCowan never admitted to committing the murder, but he did say he aided in the physical assault of Krista. So is the transcript a confession, one, and two, should it even be admissible? The defense also made the case that Krista's body was not in full rigor when she was found and that it could have been possible that she was murdered as late as 8 a.m. on Saturday morning. However, even though this was a good point, the medical jargon got lost on the jury. So that was hard. But they said there is a possibility that she got killed at 8 a.m. on Saturday morning. Right. It's what he's doing is creating reasonable doubt. Not necessarily saying like, oh, that's what happened. but There's a lot of possibilities here. The defense also brought in a witness, a man who walked every morning past Krista's house, who testified that he saw a black car with a white man inside of it speed away out of her driveway Saturday morning. But I have to say, if this man um, had this information, I don't know why he didn't come forward to the police. So, I mean, I it's kind of weird that they just found a guy who saw a car speeding away and that. The person driving the car was a white guy, and it's—I I just don't know how much I believe that guy because why didn't he come forward to the police? Why'd he only come forward to the defense?
1: No, I know what you're saying, and so it's really, that's just, just a little a, strange. Yeah, and it's eyewitness testimony. You know, it, you could really kind of dismantle that, make it not worth anything. Yes. So,
0: so now this was a the new timeline that the defense created to counter the second story that McCowan told the police. It was presented that McCowan had gotten his days mixed up because he was high and under a lot of pressure during the interrogation. In fact, it was on Thursday, the day before her murder, that during his normal route, Krista approached him while he was picking up her garbage and asked him if she could help him remove her Christmas tree that was inside of her house that she had still to take down. He went up to her house and while inside one thing led to another and the two had sex this presence in her house was confirmed by mccowan's boss mccowan had called his boss from krista's house and phone records confirm this and asked him if they would be able to take the large tree it was a problem because mccowan did not have the proper truck to take the tree away So his boss told him to tell Krista that they would be by on Monday to pick up the tree instead. Now, I'm just a little confused. I I get a little confused here because I'm confused as to whether the defense is stating that they had sex on Thursday and then they never went to the house Friday night or someone else entirely went to the house on Friday night. So Mm. that... the. The timeline is a little confusing to me, but what they're trying to establish is that they had sex on Thursday. The murder took place on Friday. So the statement that he made was wrong and that that explains his DNA at the scene. Right. That's just what the story, that which they, is really that all they saying. have
1: is that 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 he there is his semen is present within her. Right. That is that is something that you cannot refute.
0: Correct. Because they stated that the semen found, they're saying the semen found in Krista was from Thursday. And also, there were none of McCowan's fingerprints found at the scene. And those hairs that were found, none of them were African American hairs. Next, Jeremy Fraser is going to testify. And he stuck with his alibi story of juice bar, then house party. And then he went to Sean Mulvey's and returned to his house later the next morning. However, he did admit that he was so blackout drunk that night that he had forgotten what happened and he didn't remember what took place until the police, and I quote, fed him information. That's what he said on the stand. He denied being at Krista's house or killing her. Then Mulvey took the stand and said that at first he didn't like verify Fraser's alibi because he was taking the advice of his father to not get involved. But then he chose to get involved because he wanted to confirm that his friend was telling the truth. The trial lasted for 16 days and the jury deliberated for eight days. One of the jurors had to be removed because she was talking to her boyfriend who was in prison about the case and how, and this is just a quote she used, stupid the police were. So she was taken off of the um, jury. you're You're not allowed to talk to anybody about it. That's true when the verdict came back mccowan was found guilty on all three charges now in the state of massachusetts if you are found guilty of murder that is an automatic sentence of life without parole but for the charges of aggravated robbery and rape mccowan received another two life sentences the man shook his head and cried as the verdict was read after the reading of the verdict two jurors came forward and stated that they believed that racial prejudice was one of the reasons McCowan was found guilty. The judge then chose to hold a hearing in which all jurors were questioned at length as to why they made the decisions they did and why they believed McCowan was guilty. The judge found that no racial bias was used during the determination of guilt. Um, McCowan did not speak um, during his trial, but during the sentencing, he did speak, and he said he feels horrible for Krista, her daughter, and her family and friends, but he is innocent. He was and he still is innocent. So that's what he said.
1: That's yeah, pretty sad. If indeed, you know, he didn't do anything, that's really sad.
0: Oh, of course. So the reason the jurors gave was the fact that McCowan gave three different accounts of what happened that night. And it's true. He did. They also said his DNA was found at the scene. And that's kind of like, you know, his DNA was there. So, since his sentencing, McCowan has had three of his appeals denied, but still maintains his innocence. Many on the Cape are uneasy about the murder because it is believed that Frazier was involved, but McCowan took the fall for many reasons, racial bias being one of them. I think on top of the racial bias, it's also easier to say, this guy's an outsider, right? He's not originally from Cape Cod. So, on top of the racial bias, it's also, he's not one of us.
1: Right. No, you're right about that.
0: One fact that has pushed those to believe that Fraser was not the man he was made out to be during the trial just came out recently. As in 2018, Jeremy Fraser was charged with the rape of a five-year-old girl, the daughter of his girlfriend. However, the charges were dropped because the prosecutor said that evidence was only limited to the words of the child against Frazier and that the child was unable to be a witness as she was too young, and they didn't want to cause further harm. But to many, it appeared that Fraser got away with it again. So there's two, like, schools of thought. That either... Now, this is only if you believe that McCowan and maybe Fraser were somehow involved in this murder. We can't ignore the fact that there were so many other suspects that had cause and means to murder Crystal Worthington. So let's just try to like, like if we put that away. The two schools of thought are this. Some people believe that Chris McCowan was telling the truth and that it was both he and Frazier that are responsible for this taking place. And if that's the case, then Frazier took, um, got away with it completely. Other people believe that Based on the second, I um, mean the third account that was given during the trial, and this is what the prosecutors in Churro stick to this day. And like, if you watch like an investigation discovery show on this, this is what they're gonna say happened. Krista asked him on Thursday, "Can you remove my tray?" He came up to the house, and called his boss, and they were like, "Oh, we'll come back on Monday." Then Friday night, McCowan got drunk, wanted to go, like, they were flirting on Thursday. He wanted to go have sex with Krista on Friday. She wouldn't let him in. And then he broke in, raped her, and killed her. That's the story that is being projected. And, you know, it's, it's so complicated. I don't think it's fair to source Krista Worthington's past sexual history in this case because you can never do that with a victim right that's victim blaming so we can't say oh she has a past of being sexually active or free or however you want to put it because in reality Crystal Worthington we can say so many things about her right she was an amazing writer she was self-sufficient but she was and everyone says this a phenomenal mother so I don't know if I believe that she would have let two drunken men into her house on a Friday night while her daughter was awake or in the house. Yeah, no, I, I don't I know if she would have done that.
1: I I agree. I, I guess like in, in like when you're trying to investigate things, you always let like every little detail try to lead you to something. But I I don't know. I, I agree with you though. I don't I don't think that she would have done that. But I kind of, I'm just kind of confused as to who, then who did it.
0: It's, uh, you know. You
1: know what I mean? This is like, there's too many people involved and there's a lot of hands in the right. mix. I just don't know who had, because everyone, like you said, everyone had some sort of motive and the means to do it. Mm-hmm. I just don't know who did it.
0: And even, and if Chris McCowan did do it, if he did do it, then the police should have waited to interrogate him. Because he couldn't make the decision whether or not he was going to waive his Miranda rights or he was going to say, don't film this. Because if there's a man who is saying, I was there when this woman was killed, of course the police would have wanted that videotaped. Right. So I think they should have waited to do the interrogation. I think that a, it should ha- the trial should have been taken place somewhere else and a better jury should have been selected. And once that happened, there should have been a mistrial. Once it came out that oh, there was racial bias included in the guilty verdict, mistrial, and then it should have happened again. Because if the evidence is that strong, then you could convict. So I just think the way they went about the prosecution of Chris McCowan, the investigation and the prosecution was wrong.
1: Yeah. No, 100%. I agree with you there. Actually, I'm, I'm an, I am I'm totally agree with you. I don't
0: know who did it because it's complicated. It is.
1: And there's so many timelines. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's actually hard to like stay focused on the current timeline, the correct timeline, whose stories are we talking about? Because there's a a lot going on, but I think it's just safe for me to say, I have no idea who did it. I really don't know.
0: But that the, the, The trial of Chris McCowan should have went entirely different.
1: 100%. Um,
0: And this is complicated. And if you're interested in the case, I suggest that you listen to the podcast, A Killing on the Cape. They did a five-part series where they actually speak to Chris McCowan in the last episode. But I do want to say, in researching this case, it was hard not to find biased sources. Um, Whether it leaned towards McCowan's innocence or his guilt you know, it was just really hard to find. So so the only thing that I presented to you guys as an audience is things that I could verify. Of course, there's more salacious details out there, but I only want to tell you what I know to be the truth. But this is a complicated one. And, um, you know, we'd be really interested to have a conversation with our true crime couple community as to what they think happened. happened. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, before we go, we want to thank our Patreon donators because they, they really help us out and they keep this whole thing going and we'd be nothing without you guys.
1: <laughs> thank you, guys. <laughs> so
0: um, we want to thank Tara, Shayna Duquette, Karen Ann Chalpanik. She is donating $10. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Riley Weatherby, Alexander Aller, Crystal Marquez, Lauren Pfeiffer, Amanda Prow, Peach Pluff, Chelsea Williams, Jennifer DoleQuest, Robin Johnson, Tori Joslin, Anastasia Davies, Hannah Cortade upped her pledge to $5, and so did Natalie Leah. thanks guys, and Tori Joslin. So if you guys want to become Patreons and get a whole bunch of ep- extra True Crime Couple episodes, then you can join us at patreon.com slash Couple. We are tomorrow, Monday, going to be releasing the third part of our Israel Keys series, which was a long one, but was really interesting and great. And we just released an episode on two girls that went missing from Vallejo, California. And um, that was a really good episode, too. We just released that for the month of August. So there's actually four episodes for the month of August. (laughs) Okay, guys, thanks for joining us. And we will see you in two weeks. Yeah. Bye, guys.
1: Bye, guys.